Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sharp. In today's episode, we're holding social protection programs to account. Well-designed programs invest in mechanisms for accountability, for example, to provide people with the information they need to participate or to report problems and have them addressed. But this often leaves the onus on the most vulnerable people to claim rights and entitlements from the far more powerful states and humanitarian actors charged with delivering them. My guests today will talk about how to redress that power imbalance. Plus, we'll talk about the role of social protection in fostering citizen state accountability and building social contracts. For our episode today, I'm really delighted to welcome Dr. Suchi Pandey, Scholar in Residence at the Accountability Research Centre at the American University, and Louisa Seferis, Independent Humanitarian Practitioner and member of the Better Assistance in Crises, or BASIC, research team. Suchi and Louisa, welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. Thank you. Thanks very much. Suchi, can I start with you? When we think about accountability in social protection programs or in other public programs for that matter, what are we broadly talking about? What do we mean? And why is ensuring accountability so important to the effectiveness of programs? When we talk about accountability, um, the one thing that comes to mind is that it is a contested concept, means different things to different people. Typically, it's understood as seeking answers or justifications from government for their actions or seeking enforcement for failures to meet responsibilities. Voting is another form of accountability, as are courts and ombudsman offices that provide checks and balances or one part of the state or arm of the state providing oversight over another. But essentially, it is about power that different actors like governments, international organizations, corporations, states, exert over different classes or groups of people and their relationships with these power holders. So when we talk about ensuring accountability, what it means is going beyond normative visions of responsiveness, answerability, enforcement, by foregrounding the hardships and indignity that marginalized populations face in accessing basic rights and the accompanying struggle. Louisa, what would you add to that? I think you've written that accountability is considered a little bit differently in humanitarian situations. Can you give us a sense of how it's different and and how it's treated in those contexts? I think Suji put us on the right track talking about power and relationships between a state or a provider and citizens. If we consider when humanitarian action takes place, it's often organizations coming in, whether local or international, to provide assistance. So there's, it's not the state, but it's a, it's a provider kind of recipient relationship. And there we talk a lot about the sphere of influence. So basically the accountability that a humanitarian program can offer only extends so far as to what it can provide. So if we think of a program that commits to assisting 20,000 displaced families with cash assistance to meet their basic needs for, let's say, six months, In the traditional sense, this has meant that the organization that provides that cash support um, or the organizations are accountable to those recipients only. And that means they've already been selected and likely weren't involved in how the program was designed. It's now shifting a bit to collective accountability at the response level. So no matter who provides their aid directly, uh, people affected by a crisis can reach out to those aid providers, provide feedback, and ideally shape the response. But this can be challenging when the whole structure of humanitarian assistance is still project-based. 
So I would say that's a major difference between accountability writ large and what humanitarians called accountability to affected uh, people or populations, AAP. Suchi, when we're talking about programs, and I guess this is in the fairly narrow sense, what are some of the basic features that programs try to build in in this quest to improve or maintain accountability? So I think, you know, typically what you would encounter is access to information, local level monitoring, either by civil society or communities who are program participants, uh, monitoring program performance and funds, media campaigns, protests, strikes, complaints. When you think of complaints or grievance redressal, you're usually looking at three different types uh, within government or administrative. You're looking at independent redress institutions like ombuds offices and legal redress through courts. When we tend to look at complaints within social protection, we tend to find phone-based systems like hotlines, online digital complaint platforms, in-person options, physical complaint boxes, um, dedicated complaint units or offices, as well as um, you know processes like social audits. And so to unpack perhaps how some of these work, Louisa, when I reached out to you a few months ago to discuss your participation in this episode, you were right in the middle of a workshop with a team of researchers looking at social protection and humanitarian programs in Somalia, and you volunteered to capture some of what you were hearing from beneficiaries by speaking with the researchers. So a great opportunity for us to hear a little bit more directly on these issues of accountability. I'm going to play now part of an interview you did with your colleague, Camilla Adan Hassan, who is an independent researcher from Baidoa in Somalia. And here she's talking about how people receiving cash assistance in Baidoa through social safety nets and humanitarian cash assistance programs understood what it was that they were receiving. And thank you again for taking the time to record this. Well, these people coming from rural areas where they are not even educated, they come into IDP where the situation is not even good. When they come there, it's the responsibility of the humanitarian organizations to provide them with the right information and to take their feedback. But that doesn't happen because all the humanitarian organizations tend to claim to provide information, but that is only in written and on papers, but in reality, that doesn't happen. So when you talk to the community, the community doesn't, doesn't approve of what they say because they don't provide the right information at the right time. And what were some of the things that the community members or the community representatives highlighted to you about what was wrong or what was lacking? That is on the feedback mechanism. The organizations have some methods that they use for community feedback mechanisms, which are the toll-free short numbers that they assume they have that the community should be using. There is also a call center and for the feedbacks and complaints. There is also monitors, field monitors who come to, who visit the IDPs to collect information. When the community call that toll-free number, the number is not sometimes available. When field monitors visit the IDPs, some of the field monitors don't speak the same dialect as most of the community. The majority of the community who are there 
those are some of the disadvantages they face from those feedback mechanisms. When it comes to an accountability, they are asking to be involved on all stages of the program. They suggested that they should be told on whatever to be done before the implementation of the program. At the design level, before the, the program is, uh, is already planned, Suchi, let me come to you first. In that clip, Camilla is describing the many challenges vulnerable people have accessing these feedback and complaint mechanisms that are supposed to be built into the program. This is a fundamental problem, isn't it? If it's up to these most vulnerable people to be claiming their rights and making these complaints and seeking accountability from the far more powerful state, what was your reaction to that reflection from Camilla? Absolutely. I agree with Camilla's reflections. The onus of claiming rights often is on the most vulnerable populations. And as she rightly points out, many of the hotlines and feedback mechanisms exist on paper. They're either not widely publicized, fail to provide information that communities need, as she points out, or are not accessible for a range of reasons. Either people don't can't physically access them, or as she points out, they're context-blind. They don't take into account the different dialects that a particular region might have. So while one finds these basic features in social protection programs, they're not widely publicized, remain unused, and are extremely weak on responsiveness and redressal. This in part is related to, I think, the design. So those who are charged with receiving the complaints often don't have the power to act on them. But it also has to do with the motivations of the policymakers, who tend to be more technocratic rather than deepening democracy focused. So empirically, what we also find is a mismatch then between policy design the motivations of high-level policymakers, and the expectations of the complainants. So Camilla's reflection on hotlines being context-blind, not accommodating local dialects is one example of that. Another is exclusion from large-scale targeted social protection programs. Now, complaints regarding exclusion from such programs are either considered ineligible because the complaint system is only designed to accept complaint from program participants, And these complaints then are not redirected to an appropriate authority when received, and as a result, they're ignored. So while high-level commitment and resources are necessary to have complaint system feedback mechanisms in place, often appropriate accompanying motivations to effectively respond to complaints, analyze complaint patterns, and most importantly, prevent future complaints are rare. And then there is the risk of reprisals for complainants. Because oftentimes when people complain, they do so at high personal risk. And the way that this risk manifests itself is in two ways. Mobilization of socially powerful groups that risk the loss of status or power. And then they organize to suppress complainants. And another is the weak commitment to protect the anonymity of a complainant. Louisa, Suchi just talked about design, and at the end there, Camilla also talks about the need to involve people in the design of these programs. And as we were just discussing, it does raise the question, is the fundamental problem that there was a mismatch in the Somali cases that you were looking at in expectations between what people wanted or what they actually needed and what the program was designed or set up to achieve so that they're making complaints that the system can't necessarily respond to? What do you think was going on there? 
It's interesting because across the board, uh, regardless of whether we were talking to, for example, leaders of women's groups or community representatives or the youth, there was a common theme, and we see this in other contexts outside of Somalia, that people want to be involved in the design. What aid is going to whom for what purpose? And I think that it's that people are not often unaware of what program what the program intends to do until after it's in motion. There was a fantastic quote from a, a local authority that we spoke to in Northern Ghetto, who essentially said, "The international community comes with social assistance, kind of a menu of social assistance, but also a pre-cooked meal. And when people are hungry, you're not going to refuse food." People are asking to be involved at a different stage in the process when ideas are still only ideas and they can shape how they turn into projects. So now we're starting to ask questions of when and at what level and with whom should this information about assistance be shared and then conversations had. So, for example, in Somalia, community-based targeting, which sounds very community-based and very accountable and very transparent, can actually exclude certain marginalized groups, clans or subclans who are sidelined in social hierarchies. And so we're now seeing humanitarian decision makers, donors, and government officials from the federal down to the local level starting to be cognizant of that and trying to bring in people at a different stage in the process. But again, if we go back to this idea of a narrow definition of accountability and humanitarian responses, or in this case, this hybrid social protection, humanitarian via shock responsive safety nets, there's a sense that that accountability or the design is really for the intended recipients. And that then means that a lot of those design decisions are already taken. So it's a work in progress in terms of opening up and figuring out at which level and how to engage people in those design decisions. There are multiple levels of accountability. And obviously, there are global institutions that are involved in humanitarian assistance, but there are also local organizations and even when you look at just social protection programs, the delivery of which often occurs where they're frontline, the typical response to a program or a project not working is to kind of put the blame on them. And they don't necessarily have all the information or, like I said, even the power to be able to fix some of these things that they encounter. And to be able to go up the policy levels to be able to influence change, often that is not possible at the frontline provider or as a local level government official. You usually need some kind of alliance and coalition building, but you can obviously risk aligning with either movements or activists. So it's a very sort of complex uh, terrain and the multiple levels of accountability need to be considered when you are either designing a large scale social protection program or even engaged in this kind of humanitarian work where there are multiple actors involved and not everybody's held accountable in the same way or to the same extent. We've talked about the challenges here, which as you've both outlined are many, but I would just be interested to hear from you perhaps some examples of where you've seen these kinds of mechanisms that are built commonly into programs working a bit more effectively, where complaints or issues may have been handled a little bit better and what it really takes to achieve that kind of outcome. A big challenge is that a lot of the most effective ways to handle feedback is actually informally and at the point of contact. That said, I do remember a very successful example about 10 years ago in Lebanon. We were switching from paper vouchers and in-kind items to provide cash assistance uh, via ATM or debit cards. And there was a region in the northern Bekaa Valley that didn't have uh, access to ATMs without passing several checkpoints. 
So there was a lot of debate at the national level whether to continue with in-kind as we had done in another area or take a chance with the debit cards. But in the end, we actually decided to ask communities members themselves and everyone said that they would prefer to receive the cash and could reach the machines in different ways. So we went with their preference and we put in place support for those who couldn't access it and made sure that the information was proactively shared and often. What made that happen, however, which is kind of a big caveat, I think, on accountability, was not only the resources and the factors on our side. So we had a huge team, that is true, but they had well-established relationships with the communities and the local authorities, which in Lebanon is no small feat between the different sects and the communities, particularly in the Bekaa Valley. We also had really understanding and flexible donors, and there was a general risk appetite for testing different ways of working. And unfortunately, that's something that we see less of, especially in places receiving decades of assistance. There's a need to kind of have all the answers, to tick all the boxes, and to keep accountability in kind of a safer and more provable space. And so we see a lot more accountability on paper than 10 years ago, but it doesn't always translate into more accountable programs. I think informal problem solving is definitely something that we find more of. Um, I can think of examples with the large-scale employment guarantee program in India where social audits, one would think, are these grievance redress platforms or are they oversight, right? In the literature, you will see social audits are not grievance redress mechanisms. But empirically, what I have found is that even though the mandate of a social audit unit is to assist with monitoring the program, they are proactively thinking of ways if they have operational autonomy to do so and they have local cadres on the ground, uh, which in this case they did, Dalit youth from local villages across the state of Andhra Pradesh and Telangana in southern India, who were essentially people on the ground talking to workers and verifying and documenting what were the kinds of problems they were facing. What the local auditors found was that some of these workers were not just being able to even register for the program. Now, to record agreements like that and wait for the social audit process to complete and then for the convening of a public forum where a problem like this could be brought, it just is too long. So they thought of it to act on it proactively and took these complaints and said, this is what's going on. These are the number of people who cannot access it. And these are the reasons why they cannot access. And they had in the three months that they started to do this kind of local level informal problem solving, they were able to get a 30% resolution rate. So that kind of sort of connection between getting to the people on the ground and getting that kind of information up the policy level really requires the mediation of this kind of third party autonomous independent institution that has a mandate to act on this. Suchi, you've, you started to talk about the practice of social audits in India's very well-known public works program, the Rural Employment Guarantee. And in that program, the burden of accountability is a bit different where local officials are required to account for their performance. Local committees are empowered to evaluate how that program is working for people. Could you give us a brief introduction to what that mechanism is, how it works with that large program, and formally, what is what is it there to do? So social audits are transparency and citizen oversight provisions. And the basic premise is that you use government information on program implementation, which is recorded in official government documents, and you combine that with worker testimonies, physical verification of work sites by third-party 
institutions, and most importantly, citizen input during a participatory deliberative forum. And so it really constitutes of three elements, third-party assessment of access and quality of services, in this case, monitoring of Implement Guarantee Program, its implementation, and identifying and redressing problems. Third-party conveners who create an enabling environment for public deliberation, capacity building, information gathering, and assessment. And finally, presentation of findings in a public forum for collective deliberation in a third party, which can be government or civil society convened, open public forums. So essentially what you're doing is you're taking evidence generated by the government or by non-state institutions as well, and using that to verify whether the people who are intended to benefit from that program did or did not actually benefit. And this is really the central kind of the vital element of it is convening of this collective open public forum where you invite all actors engaged with that program implementation. And essentially, this kind of methodology was years in the making prior to its institutionalization in law. It really evolved from a grassroots social movement strategy. And it was developed in the context of workers and peasants in the state of rural Rajasthan trying to enforce minimum wages. But I would end up saying that it really the emphasis is not on electoral accountability, like not in every once in five years, but on everyday scrutiny of government action. And the second is, it's not just about revealing corruption. If they're organized well, they do have the potential to build political capacities of the program participants who tend to be the most marginalized. But they're also training grounds for activists and civil society groups and movements who are advocating for the improvement of social protection. What I do find interesting, there's been a recent trend in the past, I would say, decade or so around third-party monitoring or some sort of independent monitoring of humanitarian programs, particularly large-scale programs to do that. I do think there are some really key differences, though, that I think when we're looking at the application of accountability in crises is so important because there's this idea that we can take these great ideas and just copy-paste them. What we're seeing in practice is that a lot of third-party monitoring is tied to a specific program. The third-party monitors are very technical. They're usually outsiders, which is seen as a good thing, right, to have this technical, independent perspective. But they are hired by those who either funded the program or implemented the program or both. And so it becomes this circle where they may come up with some very important findings in terms of transparency, but there's a sense that when third-party monitors are uh, involved, it's almost too big to fail, and that we're looking for a certain outcome on that. And what was really interesting about our work in Somalia was that community mobilizers, civil, civil society and citizens themselves, they know that a lot of corruption is happening or there's something going on in terms of the program design not reaching the most vulnerable. But there's a sense that they don't want to rock the boat. And with the limited resources that are there, it's better not to say anything. And so I think that there's such promise in being able to exchange ideas from different grassroots movements. But I think one of the cautionary tales is when a good grassroots idea is then tried to implement top down within this kind of sphere of influence, that it kind of can go awry. One of my reflections about social protection as a, as a kind of program is that it is particularly centralized in some ways. You've got benefits that are paid electronically. They're being paid directly from a national account into individuals' bank accounts. But 
You've both really talked about the importance of frontline responders, points of contact, touch points, people who can help resolve problems in a practical sense. During COVID, we know we saw a rise in things like online registrations and all of these have benefits in terms of, you know, more efficient programs, reducing leakage or fraud. Do you think there are risks to accountability if human touch points are reduced along the delivery chain? Where there are benefits... To digital payments, the risks are high and usually manifest in a loss of benefits. So in a sense, they're counterproductive at, at some level. Access to benefits is also dependent on a range of other factors, such as literacy, ca- class, caste, gender identity, digital connectivity issues. And often the scale of the digital divide in deeply unequal societies or you know, conflict-affected contexts often does not receive There is a in-principle recognition, but it's not afforded the appropriate consideration we need when designing electronic benefit systems. So I'll give an example of like the pandemic is a classic example of like governments having to improvise and provide social assistance during a crisis. But one of the Indian states, which had recently set up a social audit unit, actually sent auditors out to verify whether COVID social protection for food security and maternal and child uh, nutrition benefits were actually paid out. And they actually found that close to 40 to 30% had not received either food security or maternal and child nutrition benefits. Now, without these in-person verifications, it was impossible to know how these leakages from these programs are occurring. You know, the point about electronic digital payments sometimes is that The technocratic focus or impetus makes governments experiment with them. So, you know, in one of the states that I was talking about earlier in southern India that was quick to implementing social audits, also experimented a lot with digital payments. But what essentially happened was that when workers were asked to shift from one platform to another, they lost wages, their bank accounts were not connected to their biometric identification markers. And then it took actual physical auditors to go out and say, okay, why are you not getting paid? It was as simple as this. Instead of taking the right thumbprint, the person with the biometric machine was taking her left thumbprint. I think there is a balance that is needed when you're transitioning to electronic or digital-based system. There is a learning curve and you need to account for that rather than just like jumping headlong into it and scrapping any other kind of human touch point. Along the way. So in Ukraine, they provided social assistance via cash. It was all digital and there are high rates of digital literacy. And this was a platform that, that people were familiar with and the government had been able to provide. And yet still, when we overlaid that with humanitarian cash assistance, accountability kind of fell by the wayside for a number of reasons. One, yes, there was a recognition that some people would not be able to access that platform. So for example, the elderly or those living in remote areas. The other issue was the kind of plurality of these different systems and the lack of proactive information. You can have uh, fantastic digital systems that can capture all this feedback. You still need people on the back end, whether literally on the ground or answering those queries and calls to be able to handle this kind of system. So in the Ukraine case, there was a big kind of promise about how two-way communication could happen because everyone had a smartphone. When some of the organizations opened their self-registration via WhatsApp and online, 
it was something like a quarter of a million people registered. Uh, and so you have to be ready for that digital tsunami to come um, from an accountability perspective. Someone is still needed to be able to do that analysis and to engage with that. So Suchi, zooming out for a moment, you'll sometimes hear people say that social protection can help to strengthen the social contract. We look to social protection programs to strengthen this kind of citizen-state relationship. If the programs have weak accountability, do they, in fact, weaken that citizen-state relationship? I think in general, globally, we are observing a weakening of the social contract, right? So the right to be able to question freely express opinions, engage in public debate to improve social protection or other forms of social assistance programs, monitoring government practices are central to accountability struggles globally. So I would agree that yes, weak accountability coupled with a hostile environment where people are afraid to speak up or silenced through the courts or government policy or internet shutdowns gravely undermines the social contract. So really in this sort of changing kind of political, social political environment in many contexts around the world, we need to rethink it. We need to think about how do we protect the gains of the past decades and how do you simultaneously kind of fight off these kinds of attacks on basic political, social, economic freedoms. So it's a challenge. And I think contextually, each kind of struggle will look very different. But I would say that it doesn't matter where you are, if you are unable to speak, express an opinion, or for some reason are unlawfully detained, the likelihood that you are going to experience accountability in a positive sort of way is low. And so it really is a struggle for activists and for advocates of accountability who are continuing to do so in many contexts, are doing that at great personal risk and at even sometimes at risk of physical assault and threat. Mm -hmm. But the positive side of it is that there is also protests and strikes and mobilization that we're seeing calling out this kind of suppression and this kind of weakening of the social contract. So I think there is hope and we shouldn't feel sort of like it's not all doom and gloom, but it definitely is a very challenging time for accountability work. Louisa, you were explaining right at the start that in humanitarian settings, the accountability relationship is often understood to be more between recipients or identified beneficiaries of a program and the providers of that assistance, whoever they are. It's not necessarily the state, certainly in a humanitarian context, might be donors and others. What are your reflections on how that kind of citizen state or the accountabilities and social contract works in that setting? You know, as Suchi, as you were talking about, the not only just the power dynamics, but this idea of being a citizen and what a person or a community feels comfortable to raise for those who are in power, whether it's political or economic. And I reflected on the fact that a lot of humanitarian responses are working in places where the social contract means different things in different places to different groups of people. And in a lot of places, like, for example, in Somalia, where we've been working, if you go to different regions, you're going to get very different answers. Or if you talk to sub-clans within a particular region, you're going to get different answers. 
So we've been looking at this idea of cultures of participation. So how do people prefer to engage civically and make themselves heard? The humanitarian space, it's hard to superimpose this idea of a quote-unquote state for many communities who have maybe never seen one, or when the government does come, that it's not in the same way the government could even be, let's say, party to violence or representing another group where they don't feel they have their interests. So sometimes the humanitarian accountability model can be helpful in exposing communities to a provider or power relationship that's less politically charged. And that's kind of in the best case scenario. However, if it goes on for too long in parallel and in silos that are program specific or project or sector specific, it risks undermining any future social contract. And this is something where my colleague Paul Harvey often talks about how humanitarian action is can be politically blind or puts on political blinders um, because of the humanitarian principles. And there's an inherent risk in, in, let's say, ignoring the idea of a social contract and the political or socioeconomic implications of that. So we kind of prioritize or advocate humanitarians to prioritize this understanding of social dynamics and how the humanitarian response influences it because it doesn't occur in a vacuum and therefore how a humanitarian response can influence the accountability pathways between, for example, a community and a state or a federal government that maybe was just established in a particular crisis. But I think the power and the hope really lies in communities being able to see different examples of what these cultures of participation or a social contract or being engaged civically means and then figure out what works for them. We'll have to leave it there. Dr. Suchi Pandey and Louisa Seferis, thank you so much for your time on the Social Protection Podcast today. Thank you, Joe. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Joe, and thank you, Suchi. Thanks, Louisa. Before we go, we like to end each episode with some quick wins. We ask our guests to bring in recommendations for research, news or events that have sparked their interest and, most importantly, we think you should know more about. Joining us for Quick Wins today is Valerie Schmidt, who is Deputy Director in the Social Protection Department at ILO. Welcome, Valerie. Thank you, Joanna. In May last year, we ran an episode of this show looking at ideas for international financing of social protection, and we had one of your colleagues from the ILO on that episode, Helmut Schwarzer, talking about the global accelerator on jobs and social protection for just transitions. Can you give us a quick overview of what the global accelerator is and what it aims to do? Uh, yes. So the global accelerator is, uh, is a global initiative that was launched by the UN Secretary General, Antonio Gutierrez, and which is coordinated by the ILO. Today, countries need to overcome multiple challenges of our time, such as the deep economic crisis, demographic shifts, climate change, digitalization, etc. And the economic transformations that are needed are obviously transforming the societies and the world of work. And so the Global Accelerator really puts social protection and distant employment at the heart of the policymaking to really ensure these just transitions, just transformations of the economy and the society. So the Global Accelerator really aims to reduce the financing gap for social protection, to mobilize more domestic and international resources for social protection, 
And by promoting the formalization of the economy, both at enterprise level and at employment level, ensuring that more people have access to decent formal jobs, this will also increase the level of income in the country and also the capacity to pay taxes and social security contributions. Thank you. So can you tell me what progress the accelerator has made so far, particularly in terms of mobilizing partners to fill that financing gap that you described? So by nature, the accelerator is really um, a large collaboration platform, if you want. It's really a partnership initiative. In addition to the UN agencies, the World Bank has already joined the Global Accelerator. And through a partnership with Germany, we will jointly support the design and the implementation of the Global Accelerator in seven countries at the start. We have already a relatively large group of countries that are, have expressed interest including 10 countries that have submitted a formal expression of interest. And among these countries, some of them have already started the process of designing the Global Accelerator. And this is what we call the national roadmap that really gives a sense of what is the added value of the Global Accelerator in the country, given the ongoing economic reforms, transformations, and policy priorities. The Global Accelerator was selected as one of the 12 high-impact initiatives to accelerate the achievement of the SDGs, and this is why it will be highlighted very soon during the pre-summit event that is called the SDG Acceleration Day that is taking place on Sunday, 17th of September in New York. We already know that Belgium is interested to support the Global Accelerator, and we expect on the 17th of September to have more pledges from more countries. So just to get a sense of what this might look like, you mentioned earlier that some countries are developing roadmaps, starting to think about their design. Could you give me a sense of what that could look like in in an individual country, for example, and how it brings together these different threads that you've described, you know, more financing, extending coverage of social protection, but also formalisation of jobs? Um, yes, I will try because we, this process is still in the making. So we have a few countries that are prioritizing the development of the agriculture sector. So moving from subsistence farming to a more productive agriculture value chains, ensuring that the production, the commercialization, the transformation can be done in within the country so that there is an increased value added of the agricultural products of the country. And so this type of transformation really requires integrated policy approaches that the global accelerator is able to support in terms of ensuring that the small holders, small farmers have, for instance, access to land property, especially women. Another part is, of course, skills development, uh, access to markets, access to finance as well, which is a huge issue in many developing countries where interest rates are too high. Uh, the development of skills, the access to social protection, and also other forms of insurance, such as climate insurance. Um, So you see that to facilitate the transformation of a sector like agriculture, and to ensure that that this transformation is just for the people who are working in the agriculture and also the communities that are around them, you really need a combination of different policies that will help to promote also decent employment for these people and, of course, universal social protection. 
Thank you. This is only a short segment, unfortunately. So for those of you who would like to hear more about this, and for those of you who enjoy podcasts, I do encourage you to go and find ILO's own podcast called Employment Global Challenges, Global Solutions. And there's an episode we can link to in which Valerie and her colleague are talking about the Global Accelerator in a bit more detail. We'll also link, Valerie, to some of the papers you've co-authored on investing more and investing better in social protection. Valerie Schmidt, thank you so much for your time on the Social Protection Podcast today. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org. Follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave a review. Back next month. See you then.